From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning. I'm Jack Palaznik. Former President Donald Trump is vowing to appeal a Cook County judge's ruling striking his name from Illinois' primary ballot. WBEZ's Dave McKinney has more. Judge Tracy Porter sided with objectors that Trump's role in the fatal January 6th attack at the Capitol disqualifies him as a presidential candidate. But she stayed her order until Friday to give Trump time to wage an appeal in state court, which his campaign said he would do quickly. A Trump spokesman called Porter's ruling unconstitutional. But attorney Karen Lederer, who represents the group seeking to remove Trump from the ballot, praised Porter's decision as, quote, a very important victory. She has reviewed the extensive body of evidence and determined that he's disqualified from the presidency. Porter said a ruling could be upended by an expected U.S. Supreme Court decision on Colorado's bid to disqualify Trump. This is Dave McKinney. The Prairie Pride Coalition held a town hall meeting at Heartland Community College last night and hosted a vigil for a non-binary teen. Next, Benedict died the day after a fight at school in Oklahoma earlier this month, emphasizing concerns about the safety of LGBTQIA plus youth. Dave Bentlin, attending for advocacy group Equality Illinois, said the leadership of school boards is a major factor in shaping whether students feel welcome. You have a school board that is stated that they are going to make this a priority, that they're going to they're gonna look to see that, that these kids are feeling safe in their, in their schools and that they're having those safe spaces where they can be themselves, where they can be honored and, um, and appreciated for the individuals that they are. I think that that's so important. Advocacy groups across the country have held vigils in Benedict's honor. And a normal West High School teacher got a big surprise this week with an awards presentation and hallway parade celebrating a recent award. April Sherman was named Computer Science Teacher of the Year by Project Lead the Way, a national network supporting STEM education. Staff were on hand to present the award. Normal West Principal Angie Codron and special guests from State Farm's STEM internship program also stopped by Sherman's classroom. Sherman says she was especially touched by student testimonials. Sometimes teaching and coaching are thankless professions, and so when we can actually hear from students about the impact we've made, it means a lot. Sherman leads a coding club for girls and young women interested in STEM fields and runs a cyber patriot team for students aspiring to careers in cybersecurity. I'm Jack Palesnik. Support for WGLT comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The CPB's Community Service Grant helps WGLT bring you Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and more programming on what you depend for news, information, and entertainment. Additional support comes from WGLT listeners. This is 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. Libraries are temples of learning and so much more. Next time on 1A, we hear from a panel of librarians who do so much more than check out your books. It's Ask a Librarian, next time on 1A. I'm Jen White, host of 1A. Listen at 9 a.m. on WGLT, Bloomington Normals Public Radio. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 30,000 people have been killed in the war there. And we're getting reports today of dozens more killed by Israeli forces as they were awaiting aid in the north. This death toll is one measure of the human cost of the Israel-Hamas war. 
The Hamas attack on Israel last October killed more than 1,200 people. Since then, Israel's critics have pointed to the rising Gaza death toll to argue that Israel's response is disproportionate. Israelis have challenged this number and said some of the dead are Hamas fighters, while Palestinians have reported that most are women and children. We're joined now by NPR correspondent Ayo Batrawi in Dubai. Uh, what do we know about who has been killed in Gaza? Well, the ministry has been keeping detailed records from hospitals that show most of the deaths since the war began are women and children. That's very much not in dispute. And we've spoken to countless survivors in Gaza and witnessed through our own producer there attacks where victims of Israeli airstrikes were civilians, including women, men and children. And I spoke with a mother early in this war who was in Gaza City. She was trying to survive those airstrikes all around her. And a few weeks later, she was killed by one of them, including 22 members of her family. Um, some of those bodies were never retrieved, including her husband and son. And that really speaks to a larger issue in the official count, which is there are so many missing people that aren't included in the death toll. Now, as Steve mentioned, what's not clear is how many Hamas fighters have been killed in Gaza. Yeah, we hear bodies buried in the rubble. How many might that be? Thousands. And not just those buried. I mean, there are also people missing who were hastily buried with no way to record their deaths in hospitals, people lying in the streets that, that can't be reached. Um, you know, I spoke with a senior Palestinian health ministry official in the West Bank last month. Dr. Yasser Bozea works closely with the Gaza Health Ministry. Here's what he said. This is an underestimation because it's more than 10,000 people under rubble, at least. Yeah, and he says the death toll also doesn't include people dying because they can't access treatment. It only includes those from direct violence, so mostly airstrikes. And, you know, researchers and aid agencies say many thousands more will die in Gaza, even if the war ended today, from disease and hunger-related causes. What are the challenges that the health ministry is facing while trying to compile accurate data on the number of people killed? Well, we analyzed one of their reports on the death toll. And what I found was a system that's completely strained under the weight of this war. I mean, in the early days of Israel's heavy bombardment of Gaza, you know, hospital emergency rooms were recording the name, age, gender, and ID numbers of each victim into an electronic database. And that list was made public about three weeks into the war after President Biden cast doubt on the number of people killed provided by Gaza's health ministry, which is administered by Hamas. But by around mid-November, there were communication blackouts across Gaza and lethal Israeli raids on key hospitals in the north as you know the military searched for hostages in Hamas but this led to disruptions in the death count and the electronic database you know and medical staff themselves were detained killed or they had to flee these hospitals and move south so the ministry's death toll is mostly based on hospital records but there are just a few functioning hospitals now in Gaza so what the ministry's doing is they're increasingly relying on estimates from public sources and media reports for casualties in the north like today's attack where Israel controls access. And even so, the health ministry's figure is still widely seen as the most reliable one available. And in past wars, it's been mostly consistent with the UN and Israel. That's NPR's Ayoub Trawi speaking with us from Dubai. Thank you very much. Thanks always, eh? Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell is the longest serving U.S. Senate leader in history. He was influential and powerful both as a majority and minority leader in the United States Senate. And now he says he'll step down toward the end of the year. Republican strategist Scott Jennings played senior roles on Senator McConnell's campaigns. And Scott, I've got a thing here that says you consider Senator McConnell a close friend and mentor. Is that about right? Yeah, I've known him for 28 years since I was 18 years old and a college student in the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. Uh, no, no, since you were 18 years old. And so you, you feel that he's brought, brought, up, brought you up in your career in some ways. 
Absolutely. He's uh, he's been quite a friend to, to me and I frankly uh, count him as, as, as my chief professional mentor. I, I can't say enough about what he's done for me personally. Why do you think he is leaving at this particular moment? Well, I think he was pretty clear in his speech, Steve, that he, you know, realized that turning 82 years old and, and talked about dealing with a personal family tragedy had reminded him of uh, the need to reflect on your own life and, and what it's time to do and when. And I think he sent a pretty loud and unmistakable message to the rest of our political leadership in this country when he did it. Um, although it's possible to say that he was also acknowledging that his influence was waning. He seemed increasingly in recent years to be, I don't know if leading by following is exactly accurate, but realizing that his Republican caucus was not in the same place he was on issues like aid to Ukraine. Yeah, I think there there is definitely a division in the conference over these issues about foreign affairs in particular, and there's no doubt that it took a toll on him fighting these battles. Uh, but I do think he could have been reelected leader had he wanted to be. But I do think over the last few months, he came to the realization that at some point, the next generation of leadership has to step forward. And when he comes out of leadership, he'll have two years left in a term. He won't be shackled by the burdens of leading a party. Uh, and he'll be free, I think, really to lead the Reagan faction of the Republican Senate conference and fighting forcefully uh, for uh, an engaged American superpower in the world. Oh, now this is very interesting. Nancy Pelosi has remained in the House of Representatives after stepping down as speaker, as a speaker emerita, uh, is thought still to be influential. You think that McConnell will still be trying to use his influence in a larger way than just being a single senator then? Yeah, he, he is the second most uh, senior person in the Republican conference. The Senate is organized on seniority. He's always been on the Appropriations Committee. I have a strong suspicion he's going to use that perch uh, to replenish and expand America's arsenals. And he'll have a lot to say about uh, the Reagan worldview. And of course, that's going to be counterbalanced against these new Trump era senators who are arguing for a more isolationist policy. I think McConnell's actually looking forward to being unshackled by the uh, the leadership position hmm. so that he can be free to fight for that worldview that I, I really do uh, believe he feels deeply in his heart. Now, there's a larger question of McConnell's legacy. Congress, uh, he, he was somebody who would work the Senate rules. He would sometimes get things done, very often block things, most famously blocking the appointment of a Supreme Court justice by President Obama in 2016, which arguably changed the balance on the court and changed history. How did he feel? How has he felt about using the Senate rules to get what he wants? Well, he, he believes uh, that he was right to do that and that it was proper for the Senate to play that kind of a role. Uh, he also believes that his moves on the judiciary, particularly on the Supreme Court, are the most consequential things that he did. So he would agree with your assessment. And over the next two years, I suspect he's going to continue to have an interest in this issue of the federal judiciary. I mean, you never know when there'll be another Supreme Court vacancy. Biden, of course, has swung the balance back during his term. And so I would expect McConnell to help his successor, whoever that is, restart the pipeline and keep the focus on putting conservative judges on the bench. Although I'm kind of wondering what the consequences of that are going to be uh, after this year's election. If we do end up in a circumstance where one party controls the majority in the Senate and one party controls the White House, could we end up with basically no justices or no judges being confirmed at all? 
Well, you, you raise an interesting question. There are some people who are starting to believe that we could be in for a triple flip, White House, Senate, and House, all changing party hands. That would, of course, uh, mean the Senate was in Republican hands and yeah. uh, a Democrat back in the White House. We'll have to see what happens. Uh, but I think McConnell's tactical experience in this realm will be invaluable to the next uh, Republican leader. And if Donald Trump wins the presidency, he's going to need the Mitch McConnells of the world to do what he did before, and that's get good people onto the bench. I think McConnell will be eager uh, to align himself with a Republican president on that, even if they have disagreements on other issues. Just got a few seconds, but why did McConnell appear to defer to Trump so often when he was thought to loathe Trump? Could hardly say his name. Well, you know, McConnell has always believed that presidents and presidential nominees do effectively lead their party. They're the most influential people in the party. And his job uh, was to help a Republican president be successful. To understand McConnell is to understand one word, outcomes. He was always looking to get outcomes for the Republican Party and the conservative worldview. I think he did that effectively with Trump, even though they obviously had a famous break at yeah. the end of Trump's term in office. They, uh, there's really no debating. They achieved quite a lot together. Republican strategist Scott Jennings, thanks. Thank you, Steve. Comedian Richard Lewis has died at the age of 76. NPR's Netta Ulibi has our remembrance. As Larry David's good friend on the show, the two argued endlessly. I said Mussolini, you said Mussolini. You know, it's not Mussolini like Mussolini. It's not, no, it's it's like, not like a cereal. I compare, I, they argued over how to pronounce things. They argued over the check. They even argued over the death of Lewis's beloved pet parakeet. This is a tragedy. You treated it like it was nothing to me. No, I, how I, dare you? I, I don't see it as a tragedy. You know, it's, why not? It's uh, my it bird. If was a parrot, it would be a tragedy. Oh, really? With some exotic bird from Brazil, like a macaw or a toucan. I don't live in a cubic dance hall. Richard Lewis got his start in stand-up the traditional way by making fun of his Jewish mother. She can throw guilt without moving her conscience. It's unbelievable, my mother. That's Lewis on his 1985 Showtime special, I Am In Pain. He was a TV fixture for years, but the comedian struggled with drugs and alcohol. In 2001, he told The Todd Munt Show from Michigan Radio he was too high to remember a Carnegie Hall performance with multiple standing ovations. I remember asking my sister, are you sure... They stood up twice. Are you sure I was on stage almost three hours? I mean, I didn't even remember the show. Lewis sobered up in 1994 in part because of the death of his friend, comedian John Candy. Sobriety became central to his life. Before he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease a few years ago, he wrote several memoirs about how the Prince of Pain, as he called himself, had found peace. Lewis also found fans playing the evil Prince John in the Mel Brooks movie Robin Hood Men in Tights and as himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm going to go. I'm going to go too. I'm going this way. No, no, I'm going this way. No, you, you came from that way. In a statement on social media, Larry David said Richard Lewis was both the funniest person and also the sweetest. But today he made me sob, he said. And for that, I'll never forgive him. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Peter O'Dowd. If you're like me, you've been thinking a lot about the Roman Empire lately. And wouldn't you know it, it was Julius Caesar who gets credit for creating the 29th day in February. The people to blame for the February leap day is it's the Romans. Something to think about next time on Here and Now. Next time for Here and Now is today at noon on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. 
WGLT's Datebook helps you connect with the Bloomington Normal Arts community and find things to do around the Twin Cities. I'm reporter Lauren Warnicky. You can find Datebook stories under the Arts and Music tab at WGLT.org. Keep up with theater showings, concerts, art exhibitions, and other community events. You can also listen Friday afternoons at 5 on Sound Ideas and weekend mornings on 89.1 FM. The NPR newscast doesn't just break a story, we follow it wherever it takes us. Stay informed with the NPR newscast every hour on the hour. Listen on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. The city of Bloomington will have to spend $100 million over the next 10 years to remove lead water service lines. A lot of cities and towns are in the same position. Up until 1956, it was mandated that the connection from the main to the curb stop had to be lead. Bloomington Water Director Ed Andrews talks about getting the lead out. That's on Sound Ideas, WGLT's news magazine, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. Listen this afternoon at 5. From the campus of Illinois State University. This is 89.1 WGLT Normal. Part of the NPR Network. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From EBSCO, committed to making it easy for people to discover and access library resources anytime from anywhere with bibliograph and linked data technology. Learn more at ebsco.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Scientists have begun cloning genetically modified pigs with organs designed to be transplanted into people. That's a lot, so I'm going to repeat it. Scientists have started cloning genetically modified pigs with organs designed to be transplanted into people. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein recently became the first journalist to tour one of the research farms breeding these pigs and brings us an exclusive report. I wind down a two-lane road through the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in southwest Virginia and turn onto an unmarked gravel driveway. Good morning. Rob Stein from NPR. Dave Ayers. Dave Ayers runs Revivacore. It's a biotech company in nearby Blacksburg, Virginia. He's showing me around the company's research farm. It's where scientists are breeding cloned, gene-edited pigs to provide kidneys, hearts, livers, and other organs. Organs that they hope will save thousands of people who need transplants. It's exciting. We've been working on this for more than 20 years, and it's no longer a science fiction experiment. It's actually reality. Ayers asked me not to disclose the farm's exact location for security reasons. We have 22 buildings and a census of pigs, around 300 pigs, all for research purposes. We head into one of the yellow one-story buildings and change it to hospital scrubs. It's a barrier facility, so it's we're trying to protect the pigs, not us. Okay, <laughs> protect the pigs from us. Yeah, that's right. From catching any infections from us. After we've changed, we climb into a truck 
we're going to go through a truck wash. So we have a disinfectant bay that we drive the truck through to clean the truck and the undercarriage. And drive through a tall chain-link security gate before heading into the first barn by first stepping through a disinfecting tub to sterilize our boots. Inside, we find seven female pigs. Four are pregnant with genetically modified clone pig embryos. The other three are suckling litters of modified piglets. So this is the farrowing facility where the newborn piglets are born. So those are genetically modified piglets? Yes, all these piglets are genetically modified. Wow, wow. Genetically modified by fusing edited pig skin cells with pig eggs. Two zaps of electricity turn them into cloned pig embryos that are implanted into the wombs of adult pigs. Four months later, cloned piglets are born, each with ten identical genetic modifications designed to make sure their organs don't grow too big, won't cause blood clots, and won't be rejected by the human immune system. Every cell in the body of this animal has those same genetic modifications. And when we procure an organ from them, you know, like every other cell, it's carrying the desired genetic modification that will be used for organ transplant. Their hearts, their kidneys, their lungs, their livers all have the 10 genetic modifications so that they'll be compatible for transplants. If you want, you know, you can hold one. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. You'll be surprised at how dense they are. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. You're so cute. How old are they? These piglets are around two and a half to three weeks. It's okay. It's okay. I gently return the squirming piglet to his mom so he can feed with his litter mates and follow heirs into the nursery barn where the baby pigs go once they're old enough to be weaned from their mothers. Dozens of young pigs are sleeping, sniffing, playing. They have hanging toys, they have balls that they like to play with. Some of them at times will even play soccer with each other. You can roll the ball to them, they'll roll it back to you. They're very smart, interactive animals. Once they're old enough, the pigs are bred to produce more litters of identically modified animals that can be sacrificed when they're about a year old for research or to provide organs for transplants. Those litters will allow us to do multiple organ procurements. From one animal, for example, we can get two kidneys and a heart. And the holy grail would be to get all the organs that you need for human transplant from one donor animal. Today, more than 100,000 people are on the waiting list for transplants in the U.S. 17 die every day without getting one because there aren't enough human organs available. So Ayers envisions a day not too far off when Revivacor will run big commercial farms scattered around the country. These farms will breed herds of these modified cloned pigs for people who need organs. There will be multiple facilities, coast to coast, in order to produce enough organs for transplant. Revivacor has already built a bigger, even higher security farm nearby. That farm will produce pigs for a pivotal study in people to try to get the modified pig organs approved by the Food and Drug Administration. But this new kind of transplantation raises lots of questions about the risk of accidentally spreading some dangerous pig virus to people, about breeding and sacrificing thousands of genetically modified pigs to harvest their organs. Sid Johnson is a bioethicist at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. They're treated like machines for the sole purpose of being disassembled to provide spare parts for humans. 
And I think the hubris of this kind of human intervention and the radical exploitation of a human-created, built-for-purpose animal should really give us pause. But Eyre says the company treats the pigs humanely and is making extra sure they're free of any infections. And, he notes, Americans sacrifice far more pigs each year for food. We've been using animals as food and on our dinner table, hundreds of millions of those animals every year. We're talking here about maybe 100,000 or 200,000 animals that would be used to save lives. I would argue that this is a, you know, a higher use for these animals. Certainly, I think, a higher use than using these animals for food. These pigs have the opportunity to transform medicine and save a lot of lives. To get the green light from the FDA, Revivacor is first testing the modified pig organs in baboons and in the bodies of people who have been declared brain dead. And surgeons have even implanted gene-edited pig hearts in two men who had run out of other options. They only survived a few weeks, but Air says the volunteers provided valuable information about using organs from genetically modified cloned pigs to try to save dying people. Rob Stein, NPR News, near Blacksburg, Virginia. It's NPR News. Kids in the Middle East without access to preschool have been tuning into a remote learning Arabic language program called Alan Simsim with surprising results. They found that an 11 week program produced almost a year's worth of learning and even social emotional progress. How kids living in crisis are finding workarounds to an education on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today at 3 on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. A lot of people are hoping to cash in on high interest rates with high-yield savings accounts. But some banks are getting the deposit without giving the return. We'll tell you more next time on Marketplace. Listen to Marketplace beginning at 5.30 this afternoon on WGLT, sponsored by SefQ. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to decide whether former President Donald Trump has immunity from prosecution on charges related to his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The high court will hear arguments the week of April 22nd. That order keeps Trump's prosecution related to the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol on hold. Immigration and security along the U.S. southern border will be the focus today when President Biden and Donald Trump make separate visits to Texas. Sergio Martinez-Beltran with the Texas Newsroom reports. This will be President Biden's second visit to the southern border. This afternoon, he's expected to call on Congress to pass the failed bipartisan border security proposal championed by the Senate. According to the White House, Biden will push Republicans to allocate funding to hire more Border Patrol agents and asylum officers. Meanwhile, Donald Trump will be touring Shelby Park in Eagle Pass. That park is at the epicenter of an ongoing battle between Texas and the Biden administration over border security. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez-Beltran in Brownsville, Texas. Wildfires in Texas have destroyed dozens of homes and forced many people to evacuate. Those fires include the second largest in state history. It's burned more than 1,300 square miles. 
This is NPR News from Washington.